Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CV182, Faith vs. Guilt Culture. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair, 292, May 12, 1993. In this hour, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I are going to visit with John Lofton and carry on with what we were discussing in, our, in the previous hour. I'd like to begin uh, by calling attention to the fact that a very, very important element in the shift of the Western world from a guilt culture, from morality, to a face culture, appearances, was Hollywood, often called the Dream Factory, which created a world of illusion. And... Uh, the extent to which people under the influence of films began to live a dream life and to respond to advertising that put all the emphasis upon face, appearance, is seldom appreciated by anyone. I came very early to a knowledge of the face versus guilt culture thinking because in my student days I knew at the University of California an old professor highly regarded as one of the more brilliant men on the faculty, an old-fashioned gentleman. I took a few courses from him and audited some and uh, he was a member of an, a famous old New England family, very gracious, very thoughtful. I know he and my father met on one occasion and uh, <clears throat> immediately took to one another because they both belonged to a world that was disappearing. Well, an interesting fact about this man that was beginning to affect some of the students, to baffle them, to amuse them, to lead to endless comment. And uh, you'd walk out of the lecture hall, which would be crowded, and you'd hear uh, a number of them shaking their heads about it or laughing about it. The man wore suits which were a generation out of date. Didn't bother him at all. He was obviously someone from a very conservative, old-fashioned New England tradition. And as long as your clothing was uh, wearable, in good condition, of good material, and they were all of excellent material, you wore it until it wore out. But Hollywood was beginning to create a mindset in a limited number of students. And during the whole time I was there, whether I was taking 
his classes or not, I would hear students laughing or shaking their heads over this man's clothing. <laughs> Appearance was everything. That's what the world of Hollywood created. And that's why, because of its powerful impact here and also throughout the world in every continent, it has created face cultures, cultures where the emphasis has shifted from morality to appearance mm -hmm. everywhere that the films have gone. And uh, whether or not we are uh, concerned with the morality of Hollywood films or whether we look at just what they were in their better days, in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s, the emphasis was on a face culture. Well, of course, in politics, you see this expressed, and you hear it ad nauseum, perception is reality. Yes. Uh, all the time. doesn't matter what's really true. Perception is reality. Coming out of World War II, the reason uh, some psychologists said that... Uh, Eisenhower was going to succeed and the Democrats could not stand up to him was that he represented the father image. Yes. We were moving into a post-war world and we didn't know what to think. Mm -hmm. So we wanted that father image to reassure us. And then the youth image which with Kennedy. So help us God, we've descended... <laughs> In other words, the we, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton images. In other words, we wanted sort of a old young guy. Yes. Well, I thought remembered the Eisenhower thing more in terms of an insecure world would made us feel more secure to have a real good general here in, in the presidency. He was going to keep us safe. But what impressed me more than the clothes is the uh, manners. Manners. American manners used to be quite good. Uh, in my grandfather's time, they all had Roosevelt's manners. They were very democratic in their mm -hmm. speech. They were very gracious to everyone they dealt with. They, were, they listened to mm -hmm. what the other fellows said, and they responded. And this isn't to say that there wasn't a considerable amount of snobbery in the Roosevelt's and the others, but you would never get it from their excellent mm -hmm. manners. Now, manners in the United States have become very, very strange. If you're at a party, and I've said this before, and you disagree with your host, the hostess comes running with a cookie tray, she gets very upset, and uh, people, people, the, the air gets cold, you came just to disrupt the party, you'll never be invited again, and so forth. Whereas in England, if you agree with everything the host says, he will never invite you back. He knows hmm. that you're an idiot. You've got to be. You can't agree with everything another man says. You must be lying or else you don't have a brain of your own. And you were expected to express yourself and furthermore, you're expected to say something that hasn't been said hmm. by somebody else. Well, you that's a wonderful segue because I you, may you, want to disagree with you. Well, you can disagree anytime you like. I'd be happy if you do. Although it may not be a disagreement. Yes, but... There is a, a, an, a, an element here of genuine manners 
yes. as opposed to artificial manners or an art, a lack of manners. It's an absolute lack of manners if you cannot express yourself candidly at a party without being made to feel like an outcast. I, I want to raise what I think, and I've heard you say many times on these tapes about the importance of manners and uh, the way you explain manners. Uh, who, who can disagree? I agree with you. The danger here is, or a danger, is that if you begin to value manners over morality, you're dead in the water. Because one of the things that those of us who preach... How would that come into it? I'll tell you how. When I preach, and because that upsets someone, I'm accused of being rude. It is rude to tell someone they'll repent. If they don't repent, they're going to hell. It's rude to tell someone if they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to hell. That is rude. Daniel was rude not to eat the king's food. Paul and Silas were well, rude to cause a riot in a town if to turn you, it upside down. If you rude. consider inviting you to a party an invitation for you to get up and give a sermon, yes, that's something else. Uh, I would say that if your position is that at no time at any party ought one to ever sermonize. I that. didn't say okay, that. Okay, good. I, would, I didn't that, say that. Okay. I said that you were not yes. offered a pulpit. True. No, I think I think in the party setting, uh, I can see how it could be rude. But but the problem is that the world constantly accuses those of us who preach of being rude. That you agitate people, you upset them, you judge them, you tell them they're wrong. That is rude. It's not good manners. At a party setting. If someone is there who is a skeptic or an atheist, you don't have to open your mouth. They come after you. So you're a preacher. Well, if they know you, yes, of course. Yes. No, you're talking, they you're are talking, aggressive. You're talking as two preachers. This has never happened to me. Because no one, no one ever confuses me with being a preacher. They will in time, Otto. And if you move in some of the circles you used to, I think you'd be... Uh, in for real trouble now because you're a long ways from I 20 years that's ago. True. I think I have uh, heard you speak of, uh, not, not, you know, not literally preaching, uh, but that you have uh, been known at some places and some people have sought you out to basically uh, take well, you yeah, to test well, for your views and they started the fight with you. Yeah, that's a different Yeah. Thing. Yes. But generally speaking, a social situation is a social situation. I don't believe that you should lie in a social situation. Uh, I think you should tell the truth. Uh, I don't think that you have to be obnoxious about it. I agree with that. Uh, and I do think that if you're asked to preach, you can go right ahead and preach. But, but what I'm saying now is that in the American social scene that I'm familiar with, it's mostly chat. It's not conversation. It's more conversation you're, in Europe. You're expected to keep everybody comfortable. Yes. And this, Hot to me, is the right. height of discomfort. Mm -hmm. I can't stand those kind of parties. Mm -hmm. That's why the typical conversation between strangers is the local sports team. And, and I don't watch sports. Or try this sometime. When someone asks you how you're doing, tell them. <laughs> tell them. I don't mean about, you know, showing your scar or your eye. Tell them. Tell them, you know, well, my son's in a drug treatment. You know, it's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, something happened. You know, in one of your favorite books, which I am re reading for the first time, Under the Rub from Under the Rubble, yes. 
the introduction by Solzhenitsyn where he talks, the gist of it is that nobody talks about anything real today. Yes. There's a lid on everything. Yes. There's no real conversation about anything. But and the realest conversation you can have is when you talk about God and the Bible and Christ. That, to many people, is the most obnoxious, rudest thing, the most private thing that you should never talk about. Well, Solzhenitsyn, at the time he wrote the introduction to Under the Rubble, had just was fresh from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was an artificial society where nobody could tell the truth, not even in your own family. And we are turning into an artificial exactly. society. Exactly. Not simply on the question of God, but on every question. But the God question is the most offensive one. That's what I'm arguing. Well, maybe it you is. could talk about the Baltimore Orioles will not win the pennant, and it's a yawner. There'll be no fistfights really over that. But you say Jesus is Lord, yell that out in the room, and then watch <laughs> it hit the fans. Yeah, yeah, I've done it. You don't have to mention it if they know you're a Christian. Oh yes, they'll come after you. And if they know you're a Calvinist, God. Oh, yeah, uh, Calvinists. You know, it's called in the scripture the offense of the cross. That the, 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 the cro to, to just preach the word is sufficiently offensive and obnoxious. But the ones who hate it uh, will try to switch the subject to you. They'll say, "Well, I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything against God or Christ or the Bible. I just, you know, don't like you." And while uh, I, I'm not in any way arguing that to know me is to love me, I know who they really hate first. They're God-haters. And what I say to people like that is, well, look, who preached the gospel with the greatest love and compassion? Well, it's obvious, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, <laughs> what'd they do to him? He was murdered. He was hanged on a tree. Can I do better? It's not, it, it, it's just, I hope you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. But a lot of people don't, there's no such thing to a lot of people as mannerly preaching. It doesn't exist. They hate preachers. Preaching is now a dirty word in our society. Don't get preachy, you're told. You know, purity is a bad word. All the words that a hundred years ago were much better words are now dirty words. Well, not a hundred years ago. You'd have to go back farther than that. The We used to... I used to feel a certain... I was encouraged, I didn't put it this way, by literature mostly, to feel a certain disdain for the Victorians. I've changed my mind about really? the Victorians quite some time back, yes, because a good facade is better than empty space. <laughs> well, well, that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a good putt to throw down here and talk about, <laughs> because I was just thinking of the Victorian era. This is where you had people who were profoundly immoral, but they knew their wine list. No, they knew that they were immoral. And there's a considerable it, difference. But did it matter? Yes, it did Did matter. they shun they, people they, because they were adulterers? Or? Yes, they did. Oh, okay, well, I'd like to hear about and this. A sinner who knows he's a sinner is better than a sinner who claims it's good to sin. Oh, amen. Now, the Victorians, uh, the Victorians were more intelligent as a rule. They were better educated. They had better manners. I come back to the manners because manners are very important. I have had the experience of dealing with dangerous people. And I can assure you that manners are very important. Otherwise, you will not live long enough to preach. Well, I'll tell you something. Dying is not the worst thing that can happen to a man. That's true. It's going to happen anyway. <laughs> well, now you've said it on the tape. Now you've... Re 
I think of George Will when I think of a Victorian. Oh, come that on. That kind of matter. No, no. You know, he named all. his daughter after Queen Victoria. No, not at all. No? They, their scholarship, a fraud. Their I think scholarship of was, was, was tremendous. They were very, very... They wrote books by the, by the mile, by the yard, almost on a Rashtuni level. They exuded books forever. But, but, but have we heard anything yet that's necessarily good? I mean, a lot of bad people wrote a lot of books. A lot, a lot of, of frauds did, a lot wrote of a lot of books. Did too. Well, in my student days, I began to read everything I could on Louis XIV. Oh, dear, what a subject. And uh, since then, I've read uh, two, three, four, five books on Louis XIV, because I found him uh, epitomizing so much in the modern age, the Sun King. He was treated as though he were God walking on earth. Uh, the divine right of kings and much more, all these ideas centering on him, uh, being portrayed as uh, Zeus, the God, and uh, in his own way rather uh, offended at God because, uh, as he said, when things went poorly for him in one war, uh, how could God do this after all that he, Louis, had done for God? Now, having read all that, and also with it the fact that the Pope was expected to uh, serve Louis and echo his opinions. I read the writings of uh, Bossuet, the court preacher. I believe I have two volumes of them somewhere still in my library was a very, very interesting experience because all the textbooks and history books described him as a, a flowery court preacher, a kind of bootlicker. And yet when I read Bossuet, for all the courtliness and a certain amount of deferential uh, attitude, he preached the faith more plainly and bluntly to Louis XIV than any uh, preacher in England, Scotland, Canada, or the United States whose sermons I have read has ever preached to a congregation of ordinary people. And it tells me a great deal that arrogant as Louis the Fourteenth was, his arrogance was nothing compared to the arrogance of the democratic peoples of the Western world who will not have God's word preached as plainly as Bossuet preached to Louis the Fourteenth. So... Uh, from 
the degeneracy of the Louis Fourteenth, we've come a long ways downhill. Well, Louis never interested me uh, in the slightest. I always thought of him as a pompous ass who bankrupted France. He did all that and more. Who bled it, bled it. Yes. It killed off all those fine people. My, my point is, in spite of all that, he still had more respect for a preacher than the ordinary person has today. Well, that's... This is a two-way street. The clergy has failed the people. Mm -hmm. And the people don't think too much of the clergy. The, uh, it's very hard to maintain respect for the American clergy, even on an intellectual level, because they've allowed the faith to go off into the swamp. But well, they it's, be it's because, precisely because they have ceased preaching directly the word of God. And in large part because they're afraid of being rude and upsetting people in their congregation. Now, I just want to say one other thing on this manners and morals thing because I don't want to be uh, misunderstood, uh, Otto, by you know, either yourself or anybody listening. I, what I'm saying is what St. Paul says, that it is a very small thing to be judged of men that he was not a man-pleaser. That's the only thing I'm saying. Well, you're a preacher. Yes. And you're not talking to a preacher. I'm not a preacher. Yes. You see. So well, if you and Rush preachers. had we're, your we're way, preachers. both of you, we would all be preachers, and there wouldn't be any congregation necessary. Well, we all are preachers. We're all priests, prophets, and kings. But we're not all preachers. No, not but formally. We may be priests, yeah, but we're not all preachers. <laughs> but one of the problems is those who do preach are out in the street in a hurry if they preach honestly. Well, that's true, and that's the fault of the American government. That's the fault of uh, they, they the reduce, democratic temper throughout the world. They reduce the clergy to mendicants, yes. and the best entertainer gets the largest congregation. Every man's opinion is as good as the pastor's. As a theologian. Yes, that's why you don't have theologians in the pulpit anymore, they're trained to be administrators and uh, crowd pleasers. They had a program on PBS last night about uh, evangelical designer churches where the church is designed yes. around the congregation. Yes, designer churches. Uh, Joseph McAuliffe wrote an excellent article on that last year. They're going to the Crystal Cathedral for graduation ceremony. Did you? Yeah, and it was... Which has lousy acoustics. Oh dear! They're horrible. They have to blast the, the things because the acoustics are so poor in oh there. My. But what an oversight! What interested me is uh, the pulpit is off to one side, <laughs> and you're looking at the choir. Oh. It's the entertainment factor. You're there for the experience of being in the Crystal Cathedral and this massive choir and these huge pipe organs all over you, which have to be huge because the acoustics are so poor. But mm. The, the pulpit is way off to the side, hmm. which is appropriate because the, the Word of God really isn't that important. Off to the side. Uh, like this that. matter of acoustics is very important because there are too many buildings designed now in terms of appearance, hmm. Hmm. and when they're built, they find out the acoustics are impossible. Hmm. You remember in New York the outrage 
when they went into the new music center from the old, what was the name of it? Uh, Carnegie. No, Bar- Carnegie's still there. They had to fight like tigers to save it. Yes, that's right. And the acoustics were splendid in the old. Yes. And a lot of remedial work had yeah. to be done. Yeah, in uh, Columbus Circle, they set up mm-hmm. a whole complex. Bad acoustics, which are still bad. Yes. Incidentally, I was at the oldest church in uh, South Africa. Very tiny, very tiny church. Mm. And uh, they had a uh, small pulpit, maybe only 15 or 16 feet high, in a very small room. Very small pews, by the way. People must have been much smaller then. And you could drop a match from the pulpit to the floor and hear it. And Anne made the observation <laughs> that the interior looked like the interior of a violin. Oh, mm-hmm. that's... <laughs> Another impression I had from the Crystal Cathedral for the dramatic effect at the appropriate time. The lights go on in this huge fountain. The windows open. This huge fountain outside comes on. And a lot of other people apparently were there for the first time because they all had the same. You could hear them whispering. It says, it smells like a swimming pool. It stank of chlorine. <laughs> so this beautiful effect. This is Robert Schuller's yes. Smell smelled of chlorine. It's very strong. It smelled like you were in an indoor swimming pool. Dancing waters. Yeah. Well, well it'll come back. It'll come back with the troubles. When the crash arrives, I mean, the Russians learned about God from the devil. I like that. Yes. Yes. Well, the emphasis on appearances is what is leading the world to do what Christ talked about as an amazing thing. Will a man give his son a stone for bread, a serpent for a fish? Well, that's what they're getting, the people. And church and state alike. No question. And uh, that's what they want. It's not what they want, it's what they get. I think they want it because they're paying for it. They're paying for it. The money that people like uh, Jimmy Swaggart, Tilton, Baker, and others have taken, uh, life savings of peoples who've thrown it at these people. Well, you're talking about a lost population searching and searching in all kinds of wrong and crazy places. They begin searching for the meaning of things in the movies, in the theater, in all these cults. I mean, the young people that protested against uh, the multiversity at Berkeley were searching. Uh, A lot of this is a religious search only in the wrong places. They don't search in the churches. They don't go to the churches. You remember the book that you and I both looked at the secularization of the 19th of, of the uh, 19th century. Yes, era. excellent. And, and uh, at that time, when the working man left the farm and into the cities, they found that the middle class churches were above them. They didn't have the right clothes to go to them to attend them. 
They had lost their parish church, the neighborhood, the village church, and the villages that they left. And in the city, the newspapers and the ball games and everything else became uh, the religion. Politics is a religion for a great many people. It's becoming the religion of the United States. And uh, it has its form of worship, it has its saints and its devils and so forth. The church is, is interesting in the United States. They seem to be preaching to the people they don't need to preach to and neglect the people that need it. And they also have fallen into a strange kind of canned patter. Uh, this is the, I've said this before. This is the first generation of Christians that haven't evolved a special Christian language. They're still using the these and thous of the 18th century. Well, the idea of politics as a religion is, is so true. This, of course, uh, in this book that I've mentioned several times, and I've mentioned it again to Rush, uh, Charles Norris Cochran's Christianity and Classical Culture, he says that this is what the ancients believed, that peace and freedom and permanent security were achievable through politics, and Cochrane says that this is the one idea that Christians fought most vigorously, and we would add, thank God, successfully. But millions are back to it. Yes. We're re-paganizing. Yes. yes. That's why... Peace, freedom, and security. Cochrane's... Oh, excuse yeah. me, go ahead. That, he, that, that the idea that peace, freedom, and security could be achieved In through politics world. or the fortunes of a party or a particular leader. And that is exactly what millions of Christians in this country believe, that we will be saved by a new political platform or leader. I have sat in meetings in Washington or the environs there with Christians who have actually said, who might save our country? Well, well how about Jesus? <laughs> these people I mean, believe they, that they can find peace, liberty, and security on earth, and they will never find it because it doesn't exist on earth. There's certainly no, not in politics. There is no security at all in life. There never was. There can't be. We can walk out and drop dead tomorrow morning. Alton Grossclose wrote a paper once some years ago in which he said the dream of a risk-free society is the most dangerous of all myths. And what a bore it would be if it was. Well, one of the things I think we're going to see in the very, very near future, God will shatter the whole world of appearances, and he has begun that work already. So we're going to see the worldwide face culture disintegrate, and great will be the fall thereof. Mm-hmm. There will be a sign, huh? They <laughs> will be given a sign. Yes. I was just uh, thinking about the designer churches, and what motivates that is the desire not to offend anybody. You just Everybody votes, and you try mm-hmm. to just make your church into whatever. It's like silly putty. If the church is a bunch of Play-Doh... The whole congregation gets together? Well, yeah, they take marketing surveys and they have focus groups where you have people sit around a table and people watch them through one-way glass, so they want to know, what do you want... uh, Well, you know, in business, they've had these focus groups for years. The idea of 
the people tell us where they want to go, and then we act like we're leading them by going around and giving them what they want. We're it's democracy this. in the church. It's what we, it is. We tried this on a personnel level in the uh, from the 50s to, say, the 70s. It didn't work. One-way mirror examinations, interviews, analyses, questionnaires, tests, psychology, and so forth. didn't work at all. Uh, I, I wrote up Black and Decker's experiments 18 years ago. They never printed it. Went back to go over the same ground and update it more recently. And I said, whatever, whatever happened to the uh, industrial psychologist who was a vice president here who masterminded the uh, tests at the Psychological Institute in Pittsburgh? And he said, this fellow I asked said, I had the pleasure of firing him. <laughs> he said he had me down as an amber. He said they had three categories, red, amber, and green. He said I was an amber to be watched. I thought you were going to say he committed suicide. But uh, they didn't work in business, so business doesn't use them anymore. Well, when I worked at the Washington Times newspaper, uh, they spent tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on so-called focus groups. And the name is a misnomer because the groups are all unfocused because they all say different things. And then the paper tries to accommodate. Uh, the politicians have the hourly tracking polls, which is the equivalent of the focus group. We want to know every, literally, hourly tracking polls in close elections. They have hourly polls brought into candidates to show exactly what people want to hear. Now, I think of this scripture in the book of Luke where our Lord says, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. But in the church and in politics particularly, that is the model. That people, the, the pastor wants all people to speak well of him in the church. He wants to please everyone. And the politician certainly wants to please everybody. But of course the problem is when you try to cobble together something... <laughs> where half of the people contradict the other half, then it becomes, shall we say, problematic? Well, if you ask people their opinion, uh, they'll give you one. But in many cases, they have no opinion. They form the opinion after the action is taken. They don't have an opinion in advance, and they don't have an opinion in the abstract. They have an opinion of something specific, which is here, alive, and moving. Then they like it or they don't like it. And by that time, it's too late to retract the action. The, there is a, a sort of a, a lack of intelligence, a lack of intelligence and depth at work in our so-called educated level. These people are not educated. They're schooled. There's a lot of difference. I'd like to go back to the whole business of designer churches and appearance versus morality. We've had an experiment with this before. Uh, when the Reformation and Counter-Reformation both gave way before the Enlightenment, the uh, Catholic Church was in a position of unique power. Every ruler and every uh, duke and prince in Europe almost without exception except for a few Lutheran ones and uh, more than a few but a handful of them in Germany and then England had a Jesuit at their right hand 
who told them what to do, how to shape their policy. The power of the Jesuits and of the Pope was enormous. But at the same time, to make up for the lack of content in the life of the church, because one of the aspects of the Baroque and Rococo eras was that they went from content to appearance in every aspect of the church's life. You walked into the churches that were built then and you were to be uh, totally overawed. You looked up and the vault of the church was painted as though it were heaven with angels and cherubim and seraphim flying around. <coughs> the whole purpose was appearance, to overawe you with appearance and the magnificent displays that the church put on in all its processionals is one of the most unique facts in the history of Christendom and a neglected fact. And for a time it did overawe the population and it seemed as though Rome were going to take back Europe. But what happened was that the church suddenly began to decay from within. So that by the time of Napoleon, the church was so poor, the Pope was crowned with a paper tiara because everything else had been pawned. And I would say the churches, Catholic and Protestant, are in their own way going the same route all over again. They are substituting appearances for reality. Theology has given way to other things. Theology is not even listed among the professions. No. It used to be the queen of the sciences. Yes. And now everybody, the people who have an opinion on religion never come close to a book on theology. They don't even know that it's a subject that has to be studied. Yes. You, you just used a very important word, an opinion. That's uh, One is as good as another. You know, you tell someone what the Bible says, well, that's your interpretation. We're talking about what J.I. Packer called hot tub religion. Mm -hmm. People just want to go soak in the church. They want to be moved. They'd like to cry. They'd like to, uh, ha they'd like to be moved, have a that's moving experience. I've heard people say, I want to go to a church where I can be moved. Well, that's not well, an opinion. earthquake will do that. That's just an emotion. That's just yeah. a sentiment. It's what they uh, want, though. You actually have no right to express a view on a subject that you've never looked <clears throat> at. What do you mean? Well, if you, you couldn't possibly have an opinion on a subject that you've never looked into. If you want to ask my opinion of higher math, I'm going to have to check. I don't have any opinion on it. I don't know any higher math at all. I've never opened up a book on higher math. And uh, religion is a big opinion, a big, big subject. I had no religious expressions. I made no religious uh, opinions. I didn't discuss religion before my conversion. And even after that, very little. To this day, I give way when theological issues are raised because I have not studied the subject that much. Well, I uh, said earlier that you know, that I think you have to have knowledge to talk about 
the scripture makes that clear that people are crushed because of a lack of knowledge and certainly uh, anyone who doesn't know anything about any subject ought to just be quiet about it. But I remember my dad saying from the time I could remember saying anything, you never discuss discuss, not necessarily argue, you just don't even discuss religion and politics. Well, I always did, to some extent. Well, he did too. I saw my father do it. Everyone does, to some extent. But, uh, how can I put this uh, the way it is? Let me say this much, that I do not believe I will understand everything, and I am perfectly content to live in mystery. Well, but you would quickly also agree that there are certain things that are not mysterious at all, that they're very clear and yes, they must be yes, proclaimed. Well, I'm not going to go down the list yeah. of them, but uh, of course there are certain basic things that Jesus yes. and so forth. Well, see, we, that, that's what I think really separates Christianity, uh, and so many preachers uh, seem to have no idea, but we have a canon, see? We have a fixed text canon. It's not like just... You know, you standing up to talk about free traders. You know, there's a lot of running room in a lot of these other areas. But I, I don't see, uh, you know, they're, they're over and over in the Scripture, there's, there's commandments to be of one mind, to be in one accord, to be in unity. That there is one way, the way, the truth. And so when this opinion, interpretation, you know, you have your view, I have mine, comes into the Christian area, it just demolishes it. It can't be brought in. I'm, I'm not saying you're advocating that. I'm just saying that that is so a very... Have you been to a Bible study? Where yeah, I was the, the kicked leader, out of one those, Yeah, in my church. Where the, where the leader says, I'll read this scripture in my Bible. Now let's take turns reading it in our different versions. Now, and when you get done with that, it says, now what does this mean to you? Rorschach and test. It's not... It's, it's not block test. Nothing is taught. Everything is discussed. Yeah, it's, it's feedback. What, what does it mean to you? Not yeah. what does God say? Designer Bible study. Yeah. Well, I've never answered a question of that sort. What does it mean to you? I don't I don't believe in those kind of questions. It's like having somebody on television ask the woman who just lost her kid, how do oh. you feel? Well, you see that every night, don't you? How do you feel? How do you suppose they feel? A tornado, how do you feel that your house is yes. totally... And, and great. I, I'm always great. amazed that nobody says, how dare you ask me such a question? I'd like to see him punch him right in the face. It, might, might, should, it feels sort of like this. Yes, yes. Except worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have no shame, the questions and microphones they stick And in. you get into this area also, where, sub, where if we want to talk about sacred subjects, there are places to talk about them. Well, this... Uh, this uh, now, look, I stipulate and I'm, that there is a rude way of preaching. Yes. That there are p- places where it would be rude... Uh, to just jump up and sermonize. I agree with that. But I think that uh, Christians, the overwhelming majority of Christians in this country, are far too concerned about pleasing other men and that they don't fear God half as much as the host or the hostess. That is the problem. Very definitely true. They have no fear of God before their face. None. None. Well, let me cite something from my childhood. Maybe it was unique, and uh, you can tell me, Otto, if it was not. When I was a boy, men did not talk about politics. Their statement was, if anyone asked them a question as to how they felt about the forthcoming election, was, it's a secret ballot. It's none of your business. No, I I recall men talking about politics 
And in fact, uh, my Irish relatives used to have great ranting arguments about politics, pounding the table and shouting at the top of their voices. Uh, and the following day, they were all buddy-buddy again. Well, here lots, lots of rants about yes. politics. Here in California, in the 20s, uh, you didn't discuss politics. You voted. If anyone asked a question, they said, we have a secret ballot in this country. It's none of your business. <laughs> that was ver very common, routine. We didn't do that. The, uh, of course, it was a regional country in those days. Yes. There, were, there were different uh, different patterns. Very there are still different patterns. Yes. Uh, Upper-class Texas is not the same as upper-class Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Of course, you hear a lot of people saying that now about the faith today. They'll say, if you're telling them what you believe and what you think, they'll say, well, are you a Christian? Well, I, that's a private matter. Or, yeah, I'm like, well, what church do you... Well, I, that's a private thing. It's none of your business. Mm -hmm. But when, of course, of course it isn't any of my business. You have the right to say no, but why? I mean, why would if... I don't know why one would want to keep secret. What it's a taboo. It's a social, become a social taboo. You had taboos about sex. Now sex is dis discussed ad nauseum in every sphere of society, and yet religion is taboo. Why can't we discuss religion if we can discuss sex? I think that's part of it, but I think another important part is people don't want to be, a lot of Christians don't want to be drawn into a discussion about the faith because they don't know anything. Well, they may not they know you. Embarrassed. They may not know you. One writer... You may be a total stranger to them. And you're asking them mm -hmm. a very personal question. Well, maybe it's wrong to say that uh, because I'll tell them and talk to them... Uh, that well, it depends upon the yeah, sort of individual you I run agree. across. I remember when I'd get on a train, and we traveled in trains, and the fellow who sat next to me, the man who sat next to me, was usually older, and he would take advantage of his age to start rattling on and telling me all about himself, never ask any questions to me. And I'd hear about his wife, how she behaved, what she liked and didn't like, his boss, what his boss knew and didn't know, uh, how much he made, uh, what his politics were, everything. Now I get on a plane, and I, unless I institute the conversation, we'll go all the way across the United States without exchanging a word. And when they do talk, they're so careful. I always feel like saying to them, what are, who are you afraid of? Why can't you express yourself? And they don't. They can't. Now, people of that sort, you get on to religion. Mm. I can well see that you get a very strange reaction. That's a dangerous topic. Well, I... It's odd, after maybe a lot of the things I've said here, that I have never in my life just sat down in a seatmate and you know turned to someone and said, "Well, have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ?" I, I, I just I, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with it, but I, I don't do that kind of witnessing. No, I don't really speak that's first. That's Arminianism. Yeah, that's well, I mean, well, thank goodness that's why I've not done that. But you know, it does come up. But uh, I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable. You know, you just can't have an in-depth talk about anything today. When you when you ask somebody, uh, well, are you a Christian? It's almost sort of a mindless question, and suddenly they're stumped. It's like it's they're... It's, well, that was my starting point, okay. that Americans can't speak. We've lost... Okay, well... That's, we've lost the yeah. power of speech. This is a silent country. 
It doesn't talk about any of the really important issues. And wants to shut up those who wanted it. Well, they get too. frightened. They get frightened. I, had, <clears throat> I think I've mentioned this once before. They had Englishman, not an Englishman, a European, who came over here and who wrote a one-page article in the National Review <clears throat> at least 20 years ago, maybe longer, who said he thought before he arrived that he knew this country because of the films and the books and everything else and the people who told him about it. He, he came here expecting to, to be very familiar. But he said, of course, there were... He said the biggest surprise was the, the Jewish influence in the United States. And he said the surprising thing about it and the extent of it, which is something he had never realized before, was evidenced by the lack of comment about it. Mm. A lot of the lack of comment. Oh, mm-hmm. The silence about it. About one of the most influential people in our country. Well... Now, silence is indicative. We have silence across the board, John. Well, this is uh, it goes back to this uh, Jewish anti-Christianism. I was on a radio show once with a uh, rabbi who was in a uh, coalition for abortion rights, religious coalition for abortion rights. And he was a rabbi. And, and throughout the program I said, but you're a rabbi. I mean, the scripture says that hands that shed innocent blood are an abomination to God. Does an unborn baby believe, bleed, rabbi, in an abortion? Is, is an unborn baby innocent? And this rabbi on the break would turn his back to me and tell the producer of the show, I did not come here to hear this uh, scripture. I will not. He was enraged. And, and when he, we talked about anti-Semitism, and I read the, uh, mentioned that passage out of the Talmud about Jesus boiling in excrement eternally. I said, how about in the interest of improving Jewish-Christian relations if you take that out of the Talmud? I think they have now. Well, he said, first of all, it was sort of a shocking answer to me. I didn't know much about the Talmud. He, he said, in effect, well, there's a lot of junk in the Talmud, you know. Some of it's just talk and it's crazy stuff. And I said, well, fine. Then take it out. It won't matter. Well, he wouldn't advocate that. He would not. He, as one rabbi, would not say, "Well, in the interest of improving Jewish-Christian relations, I think it should come out." No, he would not say that. Well, I asked the Carnegie Foundation before I converted if they would provide a, a stipend to me to do a book on minority prejudices. Oh. And they wrote back very what formal idea. letter That's a great idea. saying that they had no interest in such a subject. No such and subject. yet, when you come down to it, the attitude of the blacks toward the whites, the attitudes of the Indians toward the blacks, and so forth and so on, what a subject. And oh. it's, the, it's a great <clears throat> neglected subject. Well, you cannot deal with, and your Englishman only barely scratch the surface. You cannot deal with the blacks or the Jews or the women or the homosexuals. You have a whole world of... Uh, Unspoken realities. Uh, yes. You're a friend who wrote the book uh, on uh, a black bigotry. Uh, paved with good intentions. Paved with good intentions. What's his name? Uh, Gerald. Uh, Jared. Uh, Gerald. Uh, Gerald. Jared. 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 Jared Taylor. Jared Taylor. Yes. Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. They would not publish the book. 
uh, he had to find a minor publishing firm because the only people who are uh, to be subjects of criticism are whites and Christians. White male Christians. Mm -hmm. Don't forget the gender. Yes. I mean, gender is different than sex, yes. you know. Of any it's particular age? It's more ageable. How old uh, a white male Christian have to be? Back in the late 50s, there was a scholar who wrote uh, a paper on the change of taboos in the United States. Interesting topic. Yes. And he said, sex has been the taboo for moral purposes, but it's going to be and is showing signs of being death because we can no longer cope with the subject. Death? Uh, yes. Death. As faith is waning, death is becoming an untouchable, unspeakable subject. But a very important one, and I didn't... Was it you, John, that mentioned these videotypes about death? Yeah, faces of death, one, two, faces three, death, four. One, They're probably three, up to four. 50 now. Yes, well, there are big sellers in the video shows. Oh, these are actual deaths of actual people and accidents and so forth, which have been put onto video cassettes and are being sold or rented in the video stores. Yes. Oh, well, they've got snuff films. Well, yes, that's the... Value of it, it is taking the place of snuff films. There's something sadistic about Very watching. Sadistic. And there's yeah. the, most of the stuff that comes out of Hollywood is sadistic. Yes. But what I wanted to say, the man wrote a marvelous paper on it, but what he didn't realize that with the inability to cope with death, men can no longer cope with anything. So here you have a a white male population of tens of millions that cannot deal with minorities, cannot deal with any subject that is deemed controversial. Now, that's a faith, a face culture, not a culture geared to morality. It's a cowardly culture. Well, it, it's more than that. It's a subjugated culture. I wrote about Tacitus the last time. Tacitus is not a, uh, a favorite author for Christians because he was against Christians and Jews. But he did ally liberty to free speech. And people who, are not, who do not feel that they are free do not speak freely. I would say an important thing to add to this is that only saved people are free. True enough. That you cannot lay guilt trips on Christians. And that's why... On true Christians. Absolutely. Really. Absolutely. And, that, and that is why a lot of these people cannot cope with minorities is they're full of guilt. They believe all the lies and they cannot cope. It's the politics of guilt and pity. Well, they, They're easily enslaved to the lie of the moment. They don't know how to how to talk to a minority who can sense immediately, as we all can, whether you're comfortable or not. Well, comfort again. A few days ago, John well, Upton... That's, that's no, you're right. It's a freeze. Yeah. A few days ago, John Upton of our uh, foundation, our Cal Seaton staff 
was in D.C. and had a confrontation with uh, some men in very high places and then met privately at the demand of this one man who professes to be a Bible-believing Christian, a fundamentalist, an Arminian, uh, who has held an important position in such circles. And he is so deeply involved in the most sordid kind of corruption and really sees nothing wrong with it, although John told him bluntly what he thought of him and what kind of a person he was. And yet when it was all over, it wasn't anything he was particularly proud of. But uh, come off of it, John. What's your racket? How much are you, you raking in? Well, it's a good thing that it was Washington, D.C., and John had a lot at stake at his trip on his trip there that he didn't uh, punch the man silly and throw him out. But that is the corruption we face now. A vast world of church members who profess to believe the Bible from cover to cover but on one pole didn't believe more than four of the Ten Commandments. Each of them had their own... Uh, Exceptions? Uh, four that they were ready to retain. I can't believe it. <laughs> really, truly. And, and four the seventh? And three of the four things <laughs> that they... serious, the best of five. Yeah. So, we do have a problem in that we have a vast population within the church that belongs in hell and will end up there. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're dragging the church down. Thought. I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I think, I oh, think, I believe it with all I, my I heart. I think that poll showed that the four things that they thought were the commandments were sayings by Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't really agree with any of the ten. Well, God helps those who help themselves was one of the commandments they believed yes. in. Uh, I know one uh, very fine uh, Reformed pastor who was uh, scolded, uh, well, that's a mild word, mm. by a woman who wanted to know, because she was going to speak before a women's club, uh, where was the text that she was going to use in the Bible? Honesty is the best mm. policy. And she read him the riot act when he said, that's not in the Bible, that comes from Benjamin Franklin, and slammed the receiver down after telling him he was an ignoramus. Oh dear, that's like the time that Anne in New York, Anne was, uh, this is a long time back, 30 odd years ago, she was polled by some girl who wanted to know what her goals were in life. She said, I'm an Anglican. And the girl said, well, that's not the question. And said, that's the answer, and hung up. <laughs> <laughs> well, our time is about up. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure when you, Thank you. come. Uh, we pray for you back there in uh, Sodom, Sodom <laughs> on the Potomac. That's right. And thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com.